this part of what makes us human is the ability for us to be angry, to cry, and more than anything, to have these pro-social emotions. That's what's contagious, right? So what I talk about in the book, the reason I talk about awe, having awe again, is that's what actually gives us hope. So for me, like numbers and how we're going to move into a future and escape certain things that could add demise is good and interesting, but what's actually get, I think, and based on research, kind of get a lot of folks up in the morning is to be emotionally connected to the future. It is my pleasure to welcome to Forward, futurist, author of the great book, Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs, an Antidote for Short-Termism, and TV host of the upcoming PBS series, A Brief History of the Future, Ari Wallach. Welcome, Ari. Uh, thanks for having me. Wow. I got to say, all of us watching or listening to this right now are thinking, uh, I always wanted to be a futurist. How the hell do you become a futurist? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you want to know the, the story? I mean, look, I it, it's interesting. You don't necessarily grow up and say, I want to become a futurist. You kind of grow up trying to figure out where kind of your passions meet the needs of the world, right? Um, and I have a kind of a interesting background in the sense that like my life story starts in the 1920s. My, my dad was born in Poland in a kind of small little kind of Jewish shtetl. And very soon after the war, that shtetl was made even smaller and the, the short version of the story is he ended up escaping the ghetto uh, after his father and his two brothers were killed by the Nazis. His mom and sister were sent to Auschwitz and he escaped and joined the Jewish underground and was kind of a, a commander in the Jewish underground. After the war, did Nazi hunting, a whole bunch of stuff through Cuba to Mexico where he met my mom. Now, my mom was a student of Buckminster Fuller, who was an architect, an engineer and a futurist. A hero of mine. Uh, uh, I... I take quotes from Buckminster Fuller all the live long day. Buckminster Fuller, it, there's a lot to say. One of the things about him is there's a lot of quotes, right? And so I grew up in this home where we would have dinners that the kind of the, the temporalness of dinners, we were talking about the news of the day. That's what we did five, six nights a week. We ate together as a family. But because of my father's kind of history, going back really to the 1920s, and my mom sitting under Buckminster Fuller, the, the time frame of those conversations was always like 100, 150 years. So my dad always kind of brought in the past. So whatever we were saying, he would say, well, you know, if you want to understand that, you have to go back a few generations. Now, my mom would flip it and say, well, then where do we go with this? And she would go forward a few generations. So where my dad was in the 1920s, my mom was in the 2120s. And that was kind of how I was raised. So it kind of makes sense that I ended up kind of going into something that basically that that was an ex exemplified that big range of time. Uh, well, certainly your your family background is unique and compelling. Just the fact that uh, you had a parent who worked for the legendary Buckminster Fuller. <laughs> yeah. uh, but still, it, it seems like a difficult field. Like, how does one get into it? I mean, in your case, you studied, uh, you wound up running an innovation lab. You did a TED talk that's been seen millions of times. Uh, but like what? What was that path like? Well, it's interesting. So in the in the, I think it's interesting. No one else may think. In the in the 1990s, I went to UC Berkeley, and there was a small. My little... parents met there. Oh, go my, Bears. My brother's named after the Lawrence Hall of Science. Okay, 
<laughs> so I'm, I'm in the right place. So uh, in the 1990s, there was a small little kind of organization company in Emeryville, kind of right next to Berkeley called Global Business Network. And GBN was not really known by many people, but those who knew it knew what it was. And it was a, essentially a company started by Peter Schwartz, Stuart Brand of the Whole Earth Catalog, a bunch of other folks. And what they basically did was kind of futuring for large organizations. And they were kind of involved in everything from national security to political stuff to corporate stuff. It just so happened that they were trying to kind of give these like salon talks while I was at Cal. And I have no idea how, but I got invited to attend some of them. So that's kind of my first taste of understanding. Like you can, there are people who are focused on the long term. So it's a Bay Area thing. It's a Bay Area thing. Well, so, and we'll get to it in a sec because- they came at it, I'll say, at least in my kind of estimation, very much kind of through a, a technological lens, right? GBN, yeah. the folks that came to GBN, actually, Peter Schwartz, came from the scenario planning group at Royal Dutch Shell. So really, there weren't a lot of kind of real working futurists uh, up until GBN. Really, it was the people who were doing it were probably the intelligence community. Herman Kahn at Rand was doing it. And GBN was doing it. And if you've seen Minority Report, which most folks have, what you don't, what most folks don't know is a lot of what kind of happens in Minority Report that kind of projects out to the future was actually put together by the folks at GBN. Walter Parks brought them in and said, okay, here's kind of the plot for this movie. It's based off of Philip K. Dick. Like, how do we expand this? How do we create this world? A bunch of the GBN folks got together and created that. Now, that's a manifestation of futuring work that everyone gets to see. A lot of what GBN did uh, no one got to see, right? And so I was going to these salons and really these folks that were talking about not just the future, but really kind of what captivated me were these mega trends. was this idea that there were these larger issues that went back decades, if not centuries, that were playing out today. Um, and because I was a peace and conflict studies major at UC Berkeley studying major world conflict, it kind of kind of drew me in. And so over the years, I like read more, kind of practiced more and, and learned about scenario planning, these kind of classic featuring techniques. I guess I became a futurist. So you did, and we're grateful for it. So now you're the uh, founder and executive director of Long Path Labs. Uh, and obviously this book, Long Path, <laughs> uh, presents those ideas. I enjoyed your book a lot. I think that anyone who reads it will feel themselves striving to be more long-term focused yep. uh, and, and you make it very personal. Uh, but th- what was interesting to me was that, that, that it, it had this Zen spirituality feeling to it. It's mm. like, look, whatever's bothering you right now, <laughs> like, is it that big a deal yep. in the long haul? Yep. So like, so, so I mentioned this, you mentioned the Bay area. So I, I went to UC Berkeley in the Bay area. So while I was doing this kind of formal academic work at Berkeley and hanging out with all these futurists Monday through Friday, on the weekends, I was going to Green Gulch, which was kind of the, the San Francisco Zen Center's farm. So I was kind of going to Dharma talks and Zen talks and doing that part of my life, right? And, and I say that part, because there was kind of a bifurcation in my 20s. I was like during the day, kind of a futurist and working with really kind of the precursors to you know big tech and big data. But on the weekends, I was doing something totally different. It was, it was, a, it was a way of kind of bringing at least Soto Zen, which is kind of the, the Japanese version of, of kind of thinking about the world and suffering and the eightfold path. That was my weekends. And I kind of had those separated probably for like two decades of the work that I was doing. And I realized really around 2015, when I was doing a lot of this kind of corporate futuring work, that it, it made sense. And especially during the 2016 election, I realized these worlds 
not only should not be kept separate, but we actually had to find a way to combine them. So it's interesting. A lot of people who who read this book are like, oh, if, if they're coming in as kind of from the futuring space, they say there's this really Zen spiritual quality. Then there's people who are coming in from this Zen spiritual space who are also my people. We're like, oh, I never even thought about the future in this way. And so this book is a kind of melding of those two worlds. Yeah, I, I uh, love the fact that you made it real and relatable uh, in that way. I think your idea about the official future yep. is very interesting and powerful, where right now, most people, when they think about the future, uh, don't have a great feeling about it yep. <laughs> yep. nowadays. Uh, and one of the quotes you have is that, uh, only an examined future is worth fighting for, which yep. I appreciated a, a great deal. So do you want to walk through the cone of futures? I'm gonna, I'll walk through the cone of futures, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of like set the table Please. for that. So one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of the intertidal. Um, and so an intertidal in marine ecosystems is that place that sometimes is above water, sometimes is below water. And so when I look at where we are as a society. And when, I'm, when I say society, I, I really mean planetary, kind of where homo sapiens are at. I'm making an argument that we are in this intertidal moment. We're kind of in between what was and what will be. So, uh, you know, you probably heard of the term interregnum, which is in between two popes. So we're in this intertidal. What's amazing about intertidal, both uh, in, in the marine sense and in the sense of where we are right now, is all, it's like, it can go either way, right? So the way I think of intertidal is it's a transition point. It's a transition period. But it's not unlike the intertidal in the marine system, where basically the tide will come in and out. We're actually not sure which way this one will go. Now, the last kind of, there's been many intertidals, I think, over human history. The last kind of really big one, at least from my perspective, is from hunter-gatherer to agricultural. So 10 to, 10 to 12,000 years ago. And what, what kind of signifies an intertidal isn't just like a technological shift. It's really about a mindset shift that is that is predicated on new narratives and new ways of being. It's really kind of how we view the world. Right? And when, when you described the forces that are driving this uh, transition period. Um, so one was definitely technological, but, yep. the, but the other is the fact that it seems like our current institutions uh, aren't up to snuff. They're not up to snuff. And, and, and more so the way we kind of know that we can, we can argue back and forth. Are they, are they, or are they not? But the fact is when we step back and we look at people's trust in those institutions and we can argue that, the, some the, of that em empirically trust is declining very, very fast. Empirically. <laughs> right. And so, and, yeah. and look, we could argue, well, how you measure it. The, the institutions just aren't up here. Now, that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater, yeah. right? Part of the issue, I, I argue, in this book is that we threw the baby out with the bathwater about 400 years ago, right? As we transitioned from the Renaissance into the Enlightenment and we moved to a kind of scientific, analytical, hyper-analytical, rational way of seeing the world, the, the scientific method, which is amazing. But as we move to that, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, we also completely threw out the spiritual. We threw out the emotional. Everything was zero, one, and binary, either in or out, black and white. Now, that wasn't necessarily terrible, right? But that's how you, from if we look at Bacon and we look at the kind of these, the, the folks that kind of gave us the enlightenment, we need to go through that moment to kind of understand the world as it was. Part of it was to counter the power of the church, right? Which was kind of dictating everything, the narratives, the way we see the, we saw the world. So in some ways, we kind of see this, this, this pendulum swing to the hyper-rational because the spiritual and the emotional is out here and it can, can be, we, we can be controlled and it's controlled by others, especially when it comes to issues like your death and how, how what you do in your life 
whether you go to heaven or hell is dictated by the church. So like that was a lot of, that had a lot of power over us. So we have this transition to the hyper-rational, to the logical. So now here we are at this part of, you know, Homo sapiens, the 2020s, and the intertidal really- Yeah, yeah, yeah. How would you define what the heck we're going through now? We're going through where we're kind of trying to, again, trying to counterbalance. So on the one hand, we need kind of binary in science. It gave us technology, it gave us our phones, it gave us these microphones, right? You couldn't develop the technology for what we're doing right now on these lights and the internet through an overly romantic, you know, theological way of seeing the world. We needed it. The problem is how systems work, how human system works, how political system work isn't binary, right? It's kind of zero, one, maybe. And anyone who's kind of following quantum will realize that there's a strong corollary, right? So we're seeing the kind of decline of binary thinking, this in or out, or we could argue two-party systems, right? One or left and the right. To something that's maybe left-right synthesis, middle, which again, kind of mirrors where we are with quantum computing. Not trying to stretch the metaphor, but that's where we are right now. People are realizing the institutions, this way of seeing the world isn't working, right? So in the hyper-rational, uber-capitalism way of seeing a forest, for instance, as a capitalist, I'll see the forest and I see lumber yard. I'm like, oh, I could get $37 million from that forest, right? From a kind of systems way of looking at it, a more kind of humanistic way of looking at it, a long path way of looking at it. It's a system that provides clean air, clean water, habitat. Yes, we need trees to build, but it can't just be that. So it's a yes, no, maybe, right? And so we're in this intertidal moment. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. And so when, when you were, if you were to define long path yep. uh, and the approach, uh, how would you do so? So this goes back to your, one of your earliest questions. Um, those of us who kind of came up through futuring, it was kind of an overly intellectual kind of cognitive thing, right? Like you go into a room, a lot of post-it notes, you do scenario planning, you think your way through it. What I realized was, and this goes to kind of the, 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 the Buddhist training of my 20s and kind of ongoing, is where we get into trouble and where futurists get into trouble in general is when we say, this is the answer. This is the way to do it. It's, it's kind of the zero sum. So 
when I kind of surveyed what was out there in the kind of future in literature, a lot of it was very kind of predictive. Like, this is going to be the future. Yep. Get on board or don't. It's going to be this. And if it's not this, if it's not this official future, this official future as kind of dictated by futurists, you have no hope of surviving. And it was kind of a, and again, not knocking. Well, well, I ran into this a lot when I was running for president, when people would ask me all the time, uh, what should I tell my kids to study? Because one of my arguments was, look, technology, AI are going to be transforming work in a way that's going to make it so that certain things that might've made sense in another, another time. Uh, And one of the reasons I was doing what I was doing was what you're suggesting, which is, look, there's no reason we need to accept a vision or version of the future as given. It's like, maybe we could get together and say, you know what? (laughs) We want something else. Yeah, we want something else. And so people come up to me all the time. They go, so what should my kids learn in college? And what I I always say the same thing. I go, it's not necessarily what they should learn. They need to learn how to learn and how to kind of relearn and question these assumptions, especially around official narratives and official futures, right? So I'm getting to the Voros cone, right? And so what Long Path is, is an applied mindset. So when you kind of go through the book, you really see the book and you, you read it. It's like, it. The book exists on two layers. There's kind of the cognitive, intellectual, academic, like here's where we are, here's how, here's how to think, here's kind of how the world can be looked at in this way. There's a second part. So in every chapter, there are these questions, these almost like workbook questions. Those workbook questions, by the way, I learned that in my 20s, right? It's about kind of going through an embodied process to shift your mindset. So, so long path is a is really it is that it's a mindset, it's a way of seeing. People who have read the book are like, look, I I, I get it in that I see everything very differently now. And that's what a mindset is. So the argument that I'm making the kind of sub-rosa argument in the book is we need a different way of thinking in this intertidal if we want to successfully navigate it. There there was a review of the book and someone said, oh, the book was great, but it was terrible because it didn't tell us what the future was. It didn't tell me what I need to do, right? What it was going to be, what stocks to buy. Because that's the old mindset, right? It's like, this is what I invest in. This This is what my kids should study, this specific field. I'm making an argument and then walking through people, walking people through steps of saying, this is how you can think differently in this moment to make it successfully through. But because I don't have a crystal ball, I'm not saying to make it successfully through to anything specific except kind of these futures that we want. So that's how I describe long path as this mindset. The 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 applied mindset of long path, you there's kind of three pillars on it. And the first pillar, this idea, it's obvious, we already tacked it is futures thinking, future with an S, right? So I get, probably like you, invited to speak on these panels all the time, the future, singular, of X. Yeah. And I refuse to go on those panels unless they add an S to it. And I always get these kind of strange, well, why is an S? And I go, because we can't, if we're actually saying the future of education is X, then we are limiting ourselves. So this idea of the Voros cone, this future is Voros, right? Who, uh, for his last name is Voros. It's this idea that we kind of, in society, live in this official future. It's kind of, if we think about it as a, you'll see it in the book, it's kind of this like an ice cream. Cone. We all, we all it's need all... a shape named after us. You could have the yeah. Wallach pyramid. The... I could have the Yang cylinder. Yeah. I, I, well, you know, it's like, I, I, so Buckminster Fuller took, took that, you know, tensegrity structure of the dome, but I would like something that's more systems, right? Like the Wallach <laughs> yeah. mesh, right? Um, yes. And so the official future is how we operate as homo sapiens. Like we've always had it. We, we've always probably, look, 
I wasn't there 10, 10, 12,000 years ago. What I can say is, as I look at history, it's, it's cognitively taxing to not know in any way, shape, or form what tomorrow will bring. We have to have a kind of a sense of it, especially as a society, so we can kind of order ourselves and, and build these institutions. So the official future right now is very, at least in the, in the global north and the west, is very much a Silicon Valley dictated official future. It's like, it's all technology, it's all quantum, it's all, it's what we call kind of techno-solutionism or even techno-utopianism, or if you wanna really push it out to kind of towards a singularity, transhumanism. That's this idea, this official future that we all operate in is that it's only about technology. Now, parts of it I agree with, parts of it I don't. But what I can tell you is this official future, whether, you look at it through kind of the narrow lens of just technology or slightly broader of kind of these old Western kind of top-down binary institutions, it's not working anymore. And, which, yeah. and or, which, or at least to the extent that there is an official future, it's not one people are excited about. It's not one people are excited <laughs> about. And so there, there's, so there's interesting because there's, there's that kind of utopian official future, right? Which is tech will solve everything and we will live in this thing and it'll be perfect. Maybe we'll have universal basic income. Maybe we'll have, I mean, you know, which by the way, I'm, I'm a fan of, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's a, continuous. So there's a techno-utopian version. And there's then a there's the, well, there's also a dystopian version, yeah. right? And, and Closer to reality, but probably, you know, so and, and there's an issue with the dystopian version because in fact, that official future is all we see in media, right? So I was, so I have 13 year old twin daughters and I was kind of looking through their bookcase a couple of years ago at all these novels that are geared towards kind of young adults, teenagers, tweens, and every single book that had to do with the future, five years out, 30 years out, whether it's Hunger Games or Insurgent, every single one of them was dystopian. Every single one of them that looked out was a terrible tomorrow that more often than not was terrible because there had been some sort of cataclysmic event. It could be nuclear war, whatever it was, something terrible had happened. And I, and I realized, oh my God, this is what we are doing to an entire generation. When we talk about tomorrow, we either say it's going to be kind of transhumanistic singularity, the technology will solve everything, or it's going to be horrific, but there's nothing different. There's kind of no maybe. There's no agency. The future is going to wash over you. Either you'll eventually be uploaded or you're going to be fighting for your summer with, with spears. That's it. That, those are the kind of the two official future narratives that we're putting out for the next generation and that we're all existing in, right? Yes. And so... What I argue in the book with futures is just to kind of open that aperture and say, maybe maybe there's a third way or a fourth way or a fifth way. And how we get there is, I argue, is by having a different kind of more adaptable mindset, which is long path. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. 
You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. You know, one thing that has uh, motivated me for the last five years, I was in one of these conferences and there's a panel and there was a journalist on the stage and she said, why does it feel like we're on a path off a cliff, but no one can do anything about it? Yeah. And I heard that and I said, she's right. That is what it feels like. And it is energized and motivated me ever since because I'm like, why the fuck can't we actually? Yeah improve our future yep. like like do we really have to just accept yep. uh automation or climate change uh, or dysfunction or polarization or wh- whatever it happens to be um so i'm with you in the fact that there are multiple paths and we should do everything we can to try and <laughs> like get on one that we're yep. we're happier about yep. uh the the prescription you have um, is a fascinating one because it is much more about mindset than about what a lot of people probably ask you for all the time, which is, okay, what are the steps? And I, yeah. I confess I'm a steps guy. Yep. <laughs> so so now yep. I'm like, you know what, what we could use? Rank choice voting so that we actually get, like improve the incentives for legislators. Um, but one one of the fascinating things for me is that the mindset thing is familiar to me mm-hmm. in the sense that on the presidential, I was always arguing that we have uh, either a mindset of abundance or a mindset of scarcity, yep. and that uh, most of American life now operates on the scarcity model, yep. <laughs> and, and that that this will eventually eat us alive, and that we need to convert to the abundance model uh, as quickly as we can. Yeah, look, the the what I'm arguing for in terms of uh, having a kind of a long path mindset isn't like oh, having this mindset is the answer. What I'm arguing for is having this mindset actually opens the aperture of what is possible. So I, I love ranked choice voting, but there's, <laughs> there's very few of us who think ranked choice voting is good or interesting. More often than not, it's treated like a traffic circle. Oh, a great idea, but it's too complicated. No one will get it. The fact of the matter is, is having a different mindset that isn't locked into a zero sum binary way of thinking is kind of tilling the soil, kind of opens people up to this idea that there is a different way. So I, you know, as as I, I, I'm not able to do this kind of random control trial, right? But I'd love to do. We're getting. I'd love to get a hundred people. Fifty of them, we kind of take them into the long path mindset, and fifty of them as a control group, and then we introduce traffic circles or ranked choice voting, right? And because both of those are kind of similar in some way, it's a different way of doing it. It's not start stop. It's they're they're very similar. But if you have this kind of more adaptable kind of this mindset, the long pathian mindset, I think that opens you up to different ideas and ways of doing things and seeing different paths towards different futures. Yeah, you use examples of 
woman who has to decide how to build a track at a school uh, or a village trying to decide how to repair a bridge. And one of the things you ask for people to do is to retreat and say, okay, what is the real point? Yeah. Like, what am I actually trying to, yep. <laughs> to, to achieve to get themselves out of a particular trade-off, particularly uh, money? Yep. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, this will be cheaper. So let me do this. Yep. Um, and you also even apply it to something like a family reunion (laughs) where it's like, well, the point of this reunion is so that people can come together and experience joy and uh, like express their appreciation for, for the, this relative. So let's try to stay focused on on that as the goal, as opposed to, let's get it on the big picture, right? It's funny. We just had kind of a dual bot mitzvah for our, for our daughters. And I look, I wrote the book on this and I got caught up. I'm like, Oh, who's coming to the party? What's the party? I got caught up on this, you know, the, the subline of it is an antidote for short-termism. I got caught up in the short-termism of the moment, right? Short-termism isn't a terrible thing, right? If, if Ari and Andrew 15,000 years ago are walking in the Serengeti and a huge animal comes out, you and I should run. We should. <laughs> we shouldn't right? reflect our, that our, much. Our amygdala <laughs> should activate. Our limbic system, we should get pumping with adrenaline and we should run. We should be short-term. And the fact of the matter is we live in a part, part of being in inner title is an amped up, amplified short-termistic tendencies because again, we don't have this idea of a future we want. So we get kind of overly kind of caught up in the moment and we just become highly reactive. Now fold into that the the dopamine machine that is social media. Yep. And we have a recipe for hyper short-termism. And so when we look at ranked choice voting or these different ways we want to move forward as a as individuals, as a country, as a planetary civilization, we're only going to look at short-term fixes, what I call kind of a sandbag strategy in the book, right? Because we're looking for that. If, if you look at where we are politically right now and what's happening, especially on the right, people are looking and, and attracted to someone right now who's giving them a sense of an official future. Now, it's a retrograde future about going back to a, a, a perceived glory day, but at least it's a vision of the future where they can see themselves in it. Wow. And so this becomes the issue. Look, let's be totally clear. We're we're always asking ourselves basically two questions, existential questions, like who am I and why am I here? And so if we think about kind of policies and politics and how we go about answering those questions, anyone who can answer who you are and why you're here will always win the day. The argument in the book is that's not enough. That's a very short-termistic I way of doing it. The, the, the bigger way of doing it that we should be thinking about as a species, homo sapiens, is who are we and why are we here? And so when you talk about the book, this kind of personal way of like, why are we doing it? It can't just be for these kind of quantified metrics of the moment of this, of a family reunion and making sure the party gets, goes off right. Because the, the look, you know, like you, I've been in a lot of these very quote unquote, like powerful rooms. I've been in the, the situation room, the security council. These are all like clients. These are people who I've worked with, right? There's only a few thousand people on the planet ever actually get to be in these rooms and influence in these rooms. Yet there's billions of us. So the question is, what do we do? Well, we can vote a certain way. We can consume a certain way. And those are always just kind of the only two choices we've been giving. I'm adding the third choice. We can behave a certain way. Why? The way we behave, and I open the, everyone expected me to open the book with a big thing about the Marshall Project or a Panama, big futuristic thing. I opened the book, a story about my daughter and a missed homework assignment and how I chose to react between the action and the reaction, right? There's kind of that stimulus moment. 
in a hyper short-termistic time, the way we're going to react more often than not is for me to yell at my daughter or for me to say, oh, the family union has to look this certain way and not think about the bigger picture because the way we behave models a set of actions in this moment between let's say Ari and Andrew, but, I, but when we think about it, emotions are highly contagious and emotions are these reactions that we have more often than not. If we think about the, the reactions of the emotions we have at any given moment as actually not just about the moment, but about having long-term ramifications. So the way you and I may react right now will change how you act to someone downstairs. We actually start building these uh, emotional heirlooms that we pass down to generations. That's how we start to impact the long-term future. Sure, vote a certain way consume a certain way, but also act a certain way. Because wow. that's how we actually start changing the future. Now, some people will hear that and say, that's totally new age. It doesn't matter. We have to, we have to vote these people out of office. But 100%. We, like, trillions of dollars is at stake right here. Whether we have nuclear weapons or nuclear power or regenerative or ranked choice voting matters. I'm not taking that away. But for most of us, myself included, how I go about acting with other humans the rest of my day will actually impact the future in a way much bigger than we think, right? So I, I meet people all the time, probably like you do, these amazing people in policy or politicians that have great big ideas that are gonna save the world. But when you kind of, and this is not all of them, but you get you meet them, they're not nice people. They have terrible relationships well, with well, their family. Well, well, one of the reasons why they, and some, some of them are you know great, but a lot of them are not nice. Um, but, but part of it is because of the, uh, machine that they're a part of, or the incentive structure, yeah. and you re reference social media as rewarding short-termism, which yeah. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I, I think that there's this massive amplifier to some of the, the negative uh, tendencies yeah. that we have yeah. to think that you're always on the run, so to speak. Um, and Reading your story about you and your daughter, I mean, as a parent myself, like I could relate, and I, it made me a better parent for about a day. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I mean, the book generally just made me like think um, more, uh, both long term and also in a more elevated way. Yep. And when I'm in a good state, I think that that's like my operating mode. Yep. Um, and then when I'm in a bad state, less so. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like there are all of these forces that are pushing people toward a bad state and rewarding yep. people for it. Yep. And, and so the, so it, if I agree with uh, your thesis is that, Hey, we should also try and behave a certain way. And then the yep. behavior will end up opening up possibilities of us maybe making better long-term things happen, or maybe making our kids stronger, healthier individuals and, you know, agree with um, uh, also feel like there's this, uh, you know, again, like force multiplier on the yep. other side. Yep. <laughs> and, and so my natural thought is like, what could be like the force multiplier on like the, the, the other the, side? Yeah, the other the side. Other, I mean, look, I, there's a reason, much to the chagrin of my teenage daughters, they're not on social media because it's not them. Uh, will like, make them happier. It's not them up against an app or a company. They're up against the force multiplier of massive AI built server farms yep. who are solely focused. And this is, you know, I, I've worked with these companies, so it's not like I'm not blaming evil engineers, but they're solely focused in a in a hyper Western third stage capitalistic way of doing a value extraction from my daughters. Yep. And that's what they're up against. And so the, you know, they'll say, Oh, all my friends are on it. And I say, That's okay, I, I understand that. But at the same time, it's not, it's it's you against an army of some of the most amazing, brilliant computer scientists the planet has ever built 
who are literally trying to figure out how to capture you and keep you on there as much as possible and reward you in such a way that you constantly kind of keep coming back and keep, you know, they say we, we check our, for our email 20 times a day, right? People who are on TikTok or other platforms are checking 50, 100, 150 times a day. They're checking their phone, even when they have notifications set up. We Look, to be totally clear, I am a romantic about humans, but I also see us as very smart primates. Like the system, this is, this is great, but we're not as like all that as we think we are. It's not that difficult to <laughs> hack the hardware here, right? There yeah. aren't a lot, and, and to your point, there aren't a lot of firewalls between us and these force multipliers. And the force multipliers obviously are technology, and I'm not, I'm not a Luddite, but what I'm saying is how we design these overarching systems, and this goes to the, the third pillar of long path, We'll get back to the second one, but this idea of kind of an ultimate aim, what I call telos in the book, right? This is this idea that- What's the point? What is the point of this? <laughs> like, what it, and, and that becomes a question, right? Like, what is the point of this bot mitzvah party? What is the point of this family reunion? What is the point of this company, right? I was just researching companies. There's, you can go on Wikipedia. There's, there's about a thousand companies that have been around over a thousand years, right? Most of them are based in Japan, no surprise, um, and, and in different parts of Europe. But what is the point of those mostly privately held companies is the long-term flourishing of the enterprise, the communities they live in, and ensuring the kind of the family has somewhere to go to work over several generations. And so the question is, what if we decided to kind of order our society like that around a bigger old, a bigger goal or aim? Like, what is the point? Because the fact is, the, the, the American, let's just take the American dream, right? The picket fence, all of that, like highly unattainable for most people because of the kind of the rampant inequality of the way the system is built, the way capitalism is built right now. Um, but if we were kind of, and I, and look, I'm all for uh, stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder. That's a conversation we have to have. And luckily people much smarter than me are having that conversation. But the step back is like, again, like to what end, right? So if, if we think, Homo sapiens are going to be around for a while, which hopefully they will be. We all will be in one way or another. The question becomes like, what, why is it? Because, and by the way, there's a lot of people who will answer that and say, well, this, this hardware, this, this body with a spleen and appendix and all these things that can go wrong. That's actually just like version one, version two or three is we upload consciousness and get away with this. Like, I understand those folks. I am not one of those folks. Like, I think who we are, warts and all, literally, metaphorically, with emotion, sadness, crying, like that's what makes it beautiful. So the question is, if you're so so if if you subscribe to that thesis that we should stay in these bodies and we want to move forward over the next several thousand years, the question is, to what end? Like, what do we want this to be? What what kind of world do we want to set up for our descendants? Right? There's this big fallacy that uh, Gilbert talks about this at Harvard, kind of the, the end of history fallacy, that Ari and Andrew are at the kind of bleeding edge of how far we can go as a species. Like, this is it. Like, you know, we have clothes. I don't think it was We have, what? <laughs> if this is as far as it goes, we're, we're in some trouble. <laughs> well, so, but that's the issue. We, we're kind of convinced it's as far as it goes. So, so, so you can't tell now, but in high school, I ran track. Right. I was on I, I did two sports. I did pole vaulting and I did uh, the four by 100 relay. And what I learned about the 400 four by 100 relay is everyone can put a bunch of fast runners. You can put everyone, you know, you get four really fast folks on the track where you win and lose these races is in this transition zone where you're handing the baton off or really in the intertidal zone. 
And so what's unbelievably important right now is in those four by 100 relay races, we know what the telos is, win the race, right? The anchor runner has to cross the finish line ahead of the other people. But here's the thing, like there is no finish line in this Home, what I call the project is kind of homo sapien bigger than we are well, right now. We hope now. there's not a finish line to your point. Well, no. we hope there's not a finish line. Look, most mammals, at least on Earth, last about a million years before there's kind of a die-off. So if we say, okay, we're maybe 150 to 200,000 years into this as homo sapiens, we have at least 800,000 years. But that's that's assuming we kind of stay on the planet and blah, blah, blah. We could have a million, two, three million years left in us, if, if not more. So what are and Andrew do today? Yes, in terms of climate change and in terms of politics, these things actually matter. My argument is what, what also matters is what kind of humans are we going to be? So what do you see your relationship with... Uh... Um, effective altruism and uh, Will McCaskill, uh, whom I had dinner with last month, delightful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> yep. So they are trying to build a movement, uh, you know, when you talk about um, the contrast. And the way I'd summarize effective altruism is trying to do as much good as possible for as many people as possible, taking future humans into account. Yep. Which means that if I prevent climate change, then it's not just the people who are here, it's the folks for the next 500,000, 800,000 mm -hmm. years. And your your book did remind me of yep. that line of thought. You guys have different approaches and emphases. Um, I enjoy them both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, I mean, you cited them at least once in the book, like you yeah. guys friendly and... Yeah, friendly. Out. I think it's, it's complimentary. I yeah. think they're, they're the emphasis of effective altruism, as far as I know, and I have friends who are like EA, EA or EA adjacent, right, is is really one of like, in some ways, about running the numbers, right? If we kind of like step back and say, okay, what's the most good we can do right now? And and as I, when I talk to my friends in EA, I say, how what what is the most you can do right now outside of like, you know, how you vote and how you consume? And what they'll say is, at least what they've said to me is, what well, it's how you donate. Like, where do you put your 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 time and your money, especially around things like existential risk, like things that can kind of end homo sapiens in the near term. So I like that. It's good. Where I think the, I don't think the divergence is, but what the layer that long path adds is how you are in this moment to moment actually matters. And I don't know if, I don't think Will would necessarily argue with me, but what I'm going to kind of push very heavy on is how you are a human in the moment to moment to others and yourself uh, matters, right? So, so in the book, I talk about kind of the second pillar of long past. So we did futures thinking and we did telos, kind of ultimate aim. In the middle, I talk about transgenerational empathy, right? So where this differs with a lot of folks who kind of think about the future is I'm going to recenter emotions, right? Whereas other people will say, like, we have to kind of drive emotions out. We have to kind of be hyper rational because Emotions makes things messy and sticky. I'm actually going to say, no, 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 no. We have to invite emotions back in. Not because uh, emotions need to be invited back in so that when you see kind of these infomercials at night with children in other parts of the world, you're going to give more money because it's, and it may not be an effective thing to give to for the long term. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about like emotional in, in that way. What I'm saying is this part of what makes us human is the ability for us to be angry, to cry, and more than anything, to have these pro-social emotions. That's what's contagious, right? So 
what I talk about in the book, the reason I talk about awe, having awe again, is that's what actually gives us hope. So for me, like numbers and how we're going to move into a future and escape certain things that could add demise is good and interesting. But what's actually get, I think, and based on research, kind of get a lot of folks up in the morning is to be emotionally connected to the future, right? This is, so, so let's go back and talk about what transgenerational empathy is. So kind of, we know that there's empathy, there's cognitive empathy, something Andrew's feeling a certain way, and I can kind of intellectually understand that sadness. And there's a kind of affective empathy, which is like being there with you. Now, some will say, well, what does that have to do with the future? My argument is that being, Ari and Andrew being there together in that space lays a foundational layer for the kind of humans we want to be, right? So when I when I think about like these far futures, I, like many people who are kind of futures, we look at Star Trek, right? Sure, and, I'm and, a fan. Yeah, especially the next generation, right? Yeah. And so there's a kind of a, a Spockian future, right? Which is like overly logical and overly hyper-rational. But when you step back and say like, what makes Spock so special is this idea that he was, you know, half Vulcan, half human, that emotional side. And so what Longpath does is bring us back into a way where we can be empathic and have empathy uh, transgenerationally. So let me let me break that. Let me tease that out for a second. First and foremost, it's having empathy for the past. And there, there's one kind of um, subversive reason that is because, just to be clear, and I say this in the book, but I'm going to kind of read along for people or read, read ahead for folks, is you are somebody's past. And the way we look at the past right now tends to be kind of very judgmental. We tend to view folks in the past. And I, I, don't, I don't have to get the big, I don't have to make this political. The way we view our parents, or our grandparents, we're like, how could they do that? What were they thinking? Right? And, and it can be things that are really horrific, like Germany, something that's very close to me. Or it could just be the way like my parents used to fight with one another. Like we all, no one grew up in, in Shangri-La. But, but the fact of the matter is everyone does the best with what they have at the time, right? I often think about this, and, I, and I, the example I give is in, you know, a couple hundred years from now, people are gonna be shocked that we ate animals, right? I, I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm sure at one point we will realize how probably terrible it is when we somehow figure out their consciousness and their pain. And people will look back and they'll be like barbarians. Or if we, you just have synthetic proteins that do the same thing without so, the suffering. Without the suffering. So we'll have that, but they'll say, well, how, you know, how did Ari go? How did they do it with the suffering? How did they do it with the suffering? How did, how did, I had a hamburger last night. How could he have done that? Like, again, a transgenerational empathy isn't about letting people off the hook in the past. It's recognizing that they were doing the best they could at that given point in time. Okay, so that's empathy with the past. What that allows you to do is to move into empathy with the present. So that's really about kind of self-awareness and self-compassion. This is the, when I talk about long path being a way that we can kind of create better futures, this is kind of the both the, the, the slicing of the Gordian knot and the most biggest stumbling block because, and I've done this before, if you take a bunch of folks and you say, let's talk about tomorrow. What do you want the future to look like? What, do you, what is your desired future? This goes back to the Voris cone. They'll say, oh, my desired future is I have a big house and you know all these things because that is what society and media and their parents and everyone has said. This is what you, this is, this is what's your desired, desired official future. That's your desired official future. But in the book, I don't stop there. I go to the next, which is examine desired future. The way you have an examine desired future is to examine yourself and a level of self-awareness about what got you here, right? Marshall Goldsmith has this great coaching book. What got you here won't get you there. It's for new CEOs. 
I apply the same thing to individuals, but to society. What God is here won't get us there. So if we want to think about these better futures, if we don't examine what got us to this point and say, you know what? Maybe Andrew isn't perfect. Maybe Ari isn't perfect. We have some work to do on ourselves. That does two amazing things. One, it opens us up to thinking about kind of better tomorrows where we're not taking the baggage from the past into our decision-making matrix, which we always do. I've been running corporate offsites for 20 years, large organizational uh, offsites. I'll say, well, why, why do you guys do it that way? And they say, well, the ones before us did it that way. And they, they did it that way. So first of all, that level of self-understanding, what I picked up in my 20s, being at the Green Gulch and doing a lot of mindfulness-based meditation was examining how I got to this point. It doesn't mean you get a clean slate. No one's going to, I'm not arguing for everyone to become like the Dalai Lama and be perfect in that way. But it's kind of say like, why do I make decisions that way? Because, and I know, by the way, I still do this, right? I was trying to make a decision about something for, for my work and my career just three days ago. And when I kind of, kind of stepped back, I was like, oh my God, so much of that is coming from like my ego or how I define success or all these things that I grew up with. Well, if you hit the fast forward button far enough, not only are we having empathy for our descendants uh, hundreds of years from now, but we're also just dust. <laughs> we're just dust, right? And so that's what it does. So you have it empathy for yourself. Once you've done that, now it's about empathy for future generations. Why? Why am I arguing to have an emotional connection to my great, great, great grandchildren or even humans that I won't even know in 2250? Here's why. Everything we know about kind of cog about neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience is I can say, Andrew, we have to do all these policies. This is the most effective thing. This is our obligation to the future. It's kind of a PowerPoint, but we have to do it this way. You and I will, will nod and we'll say, yeah, we have to do it, but then we won't. Like there's no, there's nothing kind well, of One of the us. most interesting facts from your book was that people's policy changes if you actually have someone represent future people at the meeting in the, in the room in the room, in the room. So, like you just have someone be like hey guys i'm i'm you know humans from the when, future when they're in the room and i'll get to that example in a second, when they're in the room you have an empathic emotional connection with them so what what, emo, what empathy does it's like a you know a kedge like a kedge anchor so a kedge on a boat is an anchor that you throw maybe 30 feet off into the distance it sinks hits the ground and then you use a rope to kind of pull you forward so what emotions do is act as a kedge anchor for the actions that we have to take today on behalf of future generations. So the way you become a great ancestor is by taking actions that hook the, that future up. So you notice what transgenerational empathy then does is it does two things. It makes you a better human today, literally in the interactions you have with people outside, with your partners, with your colleagues, with everyone that you meet. That's a huge plus because already that starts to reverberate out over time. One. Two, when it actually comes to things like ranked choice voting or traffic circles or things around climate change, whatever it is, homelessness, poverty, when you have an empathic emotional connection with those future generations, it's no longer a cognitive intellectual hyper-rational, well, I should do this for this. By the way, that can work for some, re for some folks, but all the research shows, and there's a whole bunch of research in this book by people on the Long Path Labs Advisory Board, Hal Hirschfield at UCLA and David DeSteno at Northeastern, Jamil Zaki and a bunch of other folks, it's actually that emotional anchoring that allows you to make those decisions on behalf of future generations. We know this intuitively as parents. We're connected to our children and we will do things that we call sacrifices on their behalf because we're emotionally connected to them by birthright. What Longpath asks us to do is have that same emotional connection to those who aren't necessarily our children. 
it's a profound perspective switch. Um, uh, and it made me think, cause I'm very practical. It, it made me think that, uh, future humans need a lobby. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, uh, the long-term lobby. So in up until you can heck even call it long path lobby. You can call it long path labs if you want. So a little bit of backstory. So uh, from 2008 to 2000, really 16, 17, I was running a company called Synthesis Corp. We built kind of foresight future labs for large organizations. Probably the biggest was a UN refugee agency. So we were really helping them think about well, we have the Syria crisis right now, but we know regardless of whatever we do with kind of certain policies around climate change and energy, we're probably going to have tens if not hundreds of millions of climate refugees. So how do we kind of prepare uh, the organization and the country and the world at large to kind of think about that and act uh, in those policies? Now, 2016, 2017 happens. We have this whole kind of this election. And I give this TED Talk, Long Path. Because I had, I was developing this, this mindset, but it was kind of one of those things you do off the side of your desk because not many people want you to be working on 50 to 100 year or 1,000 year problems, right? They're, you're being hired to work on things, you know, five, yeah, five, 10, get, getting paid years, for five yeah. to 10 years is a, is a privilege, a, a luxury and an honor. And I was excited to be doing it. <laughs> but after I gave the Ted talk and after the election cycle, some philanthropists and other folks came together and they said, listen, how about you think about it this way? What if those alive in 21, well, it was back then it was 2116, but sure. you know, 2116, 100, 150 years from now, if they could go back and hire you, right? So it's kind of a, a reverse ministry of the future. Like if they could go back and hire you, Ari Wallach and your organization to work on their behalf, what would you do, right? What would you do in an ethical, moral way to kind of hook those future generations up? And so I thought about it and that's where the long, that's where long path went from a, maybe kind of a, an intellectual TED talk type exercise into something much deeper, much more, um, embodied as a practice, right? As a mindset that wasn't meant to replace anything. It was meant, you know, like I, I've gotten a lot of amazing emails from, from rabbis and priests and imams saying, I love your book. I'm using it in the work that I'm doing. I've also got it from CEOs. I've gotten it from a lot of parents, a lot of teachers, a lot of folks saying, I'm bringing this mindset, this practice into the work that I do so I can be a better human today. I can be a better parent today because I see things in a much bigger frame. To have a much bigger to what end. And at the same time, I'm also being a great ancestor to future generations. It's kind of like a two for one, right? You're, you're better and you're happier today. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Harper Collins shelved this under happiness. I was like, how are you putting this book under happiness? This is a big social... Re reading, reading this did make me happier. So I worth. thought it was going to be a book about social <laughs> issues and trends in future, but because I came, you know, you're always right, right? And and then people are saying like, oh, it makes me happier today, which makes me happy because well, what it did so is it, it tries to give you perspective on the quotidian struggles and your irritating child behavior uh, crisis of the moment, yeah. and and uh, you know, you think, oh, well, what would Ari do? Ari would try to zoom out. <laughs> like I if I zoom out. That could be what it, you know, the, the subtitle, zoom out. <laughs> zoom out and be happier today in a way that hooks up future generations as well. In a way so that, a that longer, makes you a better ancestor. Makes, yeah. you a better, makes you a great ancestor, right? I mean, that's the longer subtitle, but that is what this is about. And that's what Long Path Labs is about. I mean, so there, there's a book. We work with organizations. We're going to be working with the UN again. Like it, it, it happens. This work happens on multiple layers. But the kind of, again, this, this foundation, this bottom of the pyramid, if you want, if you will, 
has to be a mindset, has to be a way of kind of seeing the world with, with new lenses. So you're not stuck. I talk about this in the book. You're not stuck in the kind of classic trap of, well, what is the good and the right thing to do based on these bookends of from Ari's birth to Ari's death, right? This kind of lifespan bias that locks us into making decisions in a certain way. What the book and the mindset do is it kind of pulls you out of that and say, yeah, you are important, but a whole bunch of lives came before you and there's a whole bunch of lives after you. And so when you kind of move past this lifespan bias and zoom out, you can make decisions differently. And also those like you said, continuing those little things that day to day kind of drive you nuts or crazy yep. or stressful, these short termistic things like no longer matter as much. Well, certainly humans and organizations would make much better decisions if they had the perspective that you describe here. Uh, thank you for brightening our entire future, brightening my day reading your book. Uh, if someone wants to support your work, learn more, aside from buying Long Path, uh, what can they do? So for, for, yeah, first and foremost, read the book. And by the way, you can buy it. And, and it's a very, very short, pleasant it's, read. It's a short, pleasant read. It's not meant to be this thing that you buy and you put on your shelf and say, one day I'll get to it. This is meant to be consumed in like one or two days and create the shift. Now, or, or start getting you towards that. Buy the book or borrow the book from a friend or borrow it from the library, right? There's there's a book plate in the beginning part of the book that has multiple lines because it's meant to be passed on passed on generationally or among other people, right? So that's how we move from being or seeing ourselves as a singular to part of a chain of something else, right? So right from the get-go, I'm hitting you with this way of thinking. After you've read the book or if you don't want to read the book, and this, this <laughs> wasn't, wasn't, talk. And this was enough for you, <laughs> go to longpath.org. Sign up for our newsletter. We're starting to do these things called Long Path Gathers where people are coming together in different cities. We were really kind of starting to ramp that up before COVID, obviously ramped it down. Now we're ramping that up. So you can go, you can sign up there. Um, and those are just, look, and by the way, if you don't want to read the book, if you don't want to sign up for anything and you're like, this was enough. I saw the podcast. I, I listened to it, watch it. Just think next time you're faced with a decision, whether it be macro huge or very small, just ask yourself, is what I'm about to do making me a great ancestor? Is it helping both the here and the now and the long-term? And if, and if you can't answer it, it's not a binary, it's not a yes or no, but then change how you're gonna make that decision so that you impact the far futures based on your decisions because even those smallest decisions actually matter. They matter for the person across from you and they matter for the long-term because those will reverberate hopefully for tens of thousands of years. Well, I, I see it as my life's work to just try and make the future better. And you have uh, given me new insight as to what that actually can mean. I'll tell you, I personally fall into kind of a logic <laughs> yeah. approach. But the fact that you're right that we need to actually inspire and uh, instill awe and make uh, a kind of an emotional, empathetic appeal about what the future can be and who's going to come after us, I, I thought was really awesome and invaluable. And I learned a ton from you. Awesome. Ari Wallach, Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs, An Antidote for Short-Termism, and host of an upcoming PBS show. So if you guys are into PBS shows on, on the future, Brief History of the Future, it comes out when? Uh, fall 2023. Fall, a year from now. But of course, because of you, we can think long-term. Yep. Thank you very much, Ari. And really, man, huge fan of you and your work. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 